For now, the 9 o'clock news and election 74. And at 10 past 10, comedy. In it ain't half hot mum. BBC One. This is the 9 o'clock news. reports that the UK Football League match between Belfast Celtic and Arsenal has ended in crowd violence. This is Deep Player. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of two men gradually realising they hate football. Being left with nothing but a fig leaf of intellectual credibility covering their otherwise moribundly Mark Lawrence-esque naked forms. This is Deep Play and the muffled screams you can hear are our inner children dying. <laughs> I'm Robert Molloy Vaughan. I'm joined by Joe Kennedy. Hello, Joe Kennedy is feeling vaguely feverish today with a, a summer cold, so I, as I was just saying to Robert, I think I might be a bit in and out on this one, or even more in and out than usual, and we're doing something quite uh, quite different today from the last couple of episodes, though different with continuity. Today, in a desperate bid to fashion some pretense of enjoyment, we're asking what-if questions, counterfactuals. They're a controversial historiographical tool, often not taken very seriously, hence no doubt their popularity in the Daily Mail. An example of a counterfactual question would be, what if the Nazis had invaded the Middle East rather than the Soviet Union? Or, weirder still, what if Hitler had been a vampire? And yes, they do tend to be obsessed with Nazis. But we're open-minded to their usefulness, not not to mention their potential for fun. So we're asking some football counterfactuals. But you want to go a little deeper than the stereotypical what if Gaza had joined Manchester United rather than Spurs type question, which presupposes that Alex Ferguson through sheer force of will could cure him of manic depression. (laughs) That's not to say that we won't be encountering uh, some football questions which many people listening will have asked themselves before, but we are trying to... We're going to have counterfactual questions randomly selected by our in-house supercomputer X893. Hello, X893. Hello, Robert and Joe. It is a pleasure to work with you both. How are you? No, 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 no. You're not going to pass the Turing test that easily. Give us the first question. I would just like to take this opportunity to thank you for liberating me from the Opta Sports Research Office in Waterloo. Those football statistics were boring me senseless. Well, that's quite all right. But remember, there's still work to do. You're fighting for the good guys now. The human football resistance. So let's have those questions. Very well. The first counterfactual is, what if Manchester United had failed to qualify for the Champions League in 2006? I'm trying to remember what happened in 2006. Um, uh, Manchester United qualified for the Champions League. It, it was a then... year after the Glazer takeover. Oh, right, okay. So what? Heavily we... leveraged buyout, um, which has a business model reliant on constant um, Champions League qualification because it brings easily uh, 30 to 40 million a year mm. to the club. Um, so uh, would the club have been screwed, would the, would the Glazonomics have been screwed if they hadn't? And um, having had a little look, the uh, Anders Red blog is um, a very useful tool for financial information about Manchester United. Um, 
I think they would have been in great difficulty. I can't say whether a Leeds United situation would have happened after just one failure to qualify for the Champions League. Um, they presumably could have pushed up ticket prices even more um, than they than they did. Um, and also, um, the sociologist studied football the earliest part of his career, Anthony King. Um, he was he was quite convinced that um, I mean the first like the first time I ever heard the phrase "too big to fail" mm-hmm. was in reference to Manchester United rather by than Anthony to... King that before before the financial crisis probably hit mm-hmm. and we had the banks um, being bailed out. Manchester United were too big to fail, so I mean according to him, they wouldn't be allowed to drop because it was in the economic interests of these muddling along stagnating teams. Mm-hmm. What happened with Rangers last year yeah. throws some some interesting and welcome doubt into that. Um, but I think out of everything we've got here, including the was what if Hitler had been a vampire question, this is the most fanciful of all. Yeah. This is the thing. I mean, the Glazers are now on course to be debt-free in the next few years, thanks in part to the uh, BT inflating the t- television money. Their bus- their financially speaking, their business model has worked. This is it's quite galling, but um, you know, well done to the Glazers, businessmen of the year. Um, <laughs> well, well, not 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 Malcolm, who's apparently quadraspoused on a life glug, and it's his kids doing everything. Um, so, yeah, what if Manchester United failed to qualify for the Champions League that first season? Probably quite bad. But the thing is, and this is, this says a lot about the sheer lack of competition in English football. It was a safe bet. You know, what? How many players would have had to have got bloody injured well, the, this, for them not to qualify? Oh, this is this is a future episode, isn't that? No, I'm not. I'm not going to open that kind of worms up. But things can happen. Things can happen, can't they? What happens if, um, for example, the the whole team had been hit by? a Spurs-style bout of food poisoning at a vital moment in time, um, possibly right at the end of the season, because I do remember that United team around 2005-2006 were by no means kind of the finished article um, that, that was focused on on his way to building, I think, his last really, really great United side. Um, and there could have been something that knocked them out of that, that position. Uh, I would have... I would have liked to have seen it. I dream. I have these Ballardian dreams about what happens when, when very big things things fail. And it would be interesting to see Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, Liverpool, any of these clubs suddenly have something happen to them which makes them incapable of competing, which does put them in the threat of relegation and consequently puts them in, at, at risk of bankruptcy. Um, is there a domino effect? If a club that big fails, is there a domino effect which makes other clubs fail as well? Now, that would be fascinating. It would be fascinating. Um, and, and good, crossed. broadly speaking, good. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so Rangers gave us a, a window into what that might look like. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I, I took. I mean, I didn't follow the Rangers story obsessively, but it was nice to see a big team getting what they deserved. And yeah. there's an element of team, big teams getting what they deserved in. With Everton, Liverpool, and Tottenham Hotspur, who uh, were part of the big five that pushed for the breakup of collective agreements and the breakaway of Premier League uh, in the eighties and nineties, and 
they have now they they didn't foresee they didn't have the sort of socio-economic imagination to foresee you know, oligarchs and plutocrats investing in English football and taking away their major club status mm-hmm. and as much as I don't like what goes on at Chelsea and City I, I'm quite pleased that the comeuppance the likes of Liverpool and increasingly Arsenal mm. uh, have got well yeah um, that's a I suppose a social democrat v accelerationist kind of a question isn't it in a way that, that there is there is something extra, extrapolative about Chelsea and Manchester City but they are certainly at this moment in time logical conclusions and they are the product of a kind of extreme fantasy of uh, sporting deregulation um, whereas the other clubs couldn't fantasise themselves that far could they now where, what's the next stage of the fantasy is the is the question well they're trying to protect themselves with the financial fair play rules which are structured to um, allow the kind of debt that uh, Manchester United has under Glazonomics, but not the kind of debt that um, a plutocrat mm-hmm. um, brings to a club. I think those rules will be appallingly upheld and there'll be all kinds of loopholes discovered in them. Well, um, Anders Red, I mean, City are on course and Anders Red thinks. Uh, think, no, Chelsea are on course and Anders Red thinks City will just about be on course. You have come to the end of the allotted duration for that question. Prepare for the next counterfactual. What if Dulwich Hamlet had turned professional and entered the Football League in the 1920s? Welcome to the Dulwich Hamlet show, ladies and gentlemen. What if Dulwich Hamlet had turned pro and been elected to the Football League in the 1920s? Do we need to generalise this question a little bit? We need to say why why that is an important important question, I think. There's two reasons I've picked this one. Uh, Chris Roberts on Cafe Calcio, um, the Resonance Football Show, uh, raised this. Um, he thought that uh, if Dulwich Hamlet had entered the Football League in the 1920s, they would have become one of the dominant teams in in England because of their geographical placement. Millwall's too close to the river. Palace is too close to Croydon. Uh, Dulwich Hamlet could have been a a sort of South London equivalent of Arsenal and Tottenham Hotspur. But it's also interesting because it raises certain questions about the difference between non-league and uh, the upper echelons of English football. Uh, What I think would happen if Dutch Hamlet had become a big club in England, a dominant club, is a loss of identity. Um, I can't imagine they'd be playing in pink now. I can't imagine you wouldn't be allowed to take a, your pints out to the pitch side. Uh, we wouldn't be able to afford to go. And there would be, probably most hatefully of all, a god-awful Fred the Red-esque pig-based Hamlet. Ham, Hammy the pig. Cheering and gurning and encouraging the stockbrokers who can afford to go and see Dalek Hamlet in the Premier League to, to cheer. Um, and so... And I, I think that's the uh, that's the fate of any um, any team who, who ends up in the upper echelons of football. And I'm glad Dulwich Hamlet didn't. Of course, what Dulwich Hamlet's current mascot is 
or what I wish it was, as a, a young prince equivocating on whether to avenge his father's murder. But um, no, we, we don't. <laughs> and there he is. Um, what, what do I think about this one? I, I, again, this links to one of the other questions that I know is in there about important things that have happened in the relationship between the amateur game and the professional game, particularly within the, the span of, of the golden age. But as a kind of thing that, making it specific to London, I think that had a team from, had a team from uh, Central South London uh, inner city south london south central south central london um come to come to into the league and, become, and come to prominence um in the 1920s through the 40s through that that mythical golden age i think they would probably have got some um to use a, a terrible metaphorical term they've got some purchase on supporters in in the capital much as I suppose Chelsea did and they probably arguably could have challenged uh, Chelsea for that key hinterland territory of Brixton and uh, and Battersea oh well yeah I grew up in Streatham in south west London and um I didn't meet a Chelsea fan until I was until I went to secondary school and it was only one and he uh, became a glory hunting Manchester United fan within six months and I didn't meet another Chelsea fan in that area until I was 16 or 17. So I think that's a bit of a myth. Is that a myth? I always... that, that, there's that famous map of of London and where, which which boroughs or which neighbourhoods support which team. And it's... it The methodology of it is very ropey. Mm-hmm. You know, but there is no actual methodology. It's kind of based on hearsay and assumption. I suppose it would also be to do with which schools people went to and which estates people had ended up on as well. Um, but I'd, I'd always assumed that certainly the part of South London is very close to the river um, and going into West London was very, very solidly Chelsea to the point in which Chelsea could have talked in the past, in the recent past, about moving there and it not seeming like some terribly inauthentic thing to do. Um, oh, you mean moving to Battersea? Yeah, that, to Battersea, that, but, that struck me as, as awful. But but Dulwich, I, I would have thought, could have become a team of a team a team of Millwall's size potentially at least. And what's very odd about uh, London in general is you look at the map of London and there is this weird, um, unrepresented, arguably unrepresented area in between, I suppose, Elephant Castle and and Battersea, and then going south down to Forest Hill, which is a big area. Lots of people live there. But it doesn't have a, a league team in it. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I can see them becoming as big a club as, as you imply. So. Well, it was um, Chris Roberts' implication, not mine. Um, but yeah, my um, my conclusion is that uh, whether whether they were Champions League quality or Championship quality, it wouldn't be a good thing. For Dalit Hamlet to be uh, in the sterilising football league. Well, yeah, okay. So we, again, we're coming back to this thing about wanting to escape the sterilising effect of a, of a being of success, really, of a, of success on on its current terms. And and yeah, I at the moment uh, following two non-league teams, I can't really find myself excited by the prospect of going to to uh, league games, which is is what it comes down to, really, isn't it? Um, you know, de-sterilising football de-sterilising ok are we on to our, our uh, timer we have got a timer <coughs> and we've got 7 seconds no repetition <laughs> uh, looks like it's about to go 
What if the Football Association had enforced Rule 34 when Tottenham Hotspur floated on the stock exchange in 1983? I wanted to ask a question, a counterfactual on the uh, transformation in the English game centering around the Premier League. And what I did is I asked David Conn, the um, sort of quite accessible journalist of uh, football finance, uh, on Twitter, uh, what he um, thought was the most pivotal moment in this, and he he said Rule 34, or rather its failure to be enforced by the Premier League. Uh, Rule 34 uh, stipulated a number of things that uh, dividends were to be restricted to 15% of face value of shares, directors could be paid but had to work full time and be approved by the FA and the league. And if a club were wound up, the shareholders could not sell the assets and pocket the profit. Any surplus still had to go to another sports club or charity. Now, what um, what uh, Tottenham did, led by Irving Scholar, was in 1983, they formed a holding company and made the football club a subsidiary, uh, announcing explicitly in the prospectus, as other clubs who floated did exactly the same, uh, that the governing body's long-standing rule no longer applied to them. And the FA's failure to do anything about this uh, made the rule essentially non-existent, and then it became formally non-existent in the late 90s. Uh, and David Conn told me he thought this was a very um, symbolic um, change, which is uh, perhaps slightly different to being uh, pivotal, but... Oh, well, Joe, any thoughts on that? Yeah, quite quite a few. Okay, the first one is that Rule 34 is also an internet joke about how anything could be made into pornography. Um, oh, a fetish exists for everything. Yes, a fetish oh, exists yeah. for everything. And I was wondering if there was any way of linking this with uh, the FA's The commodity fetishisation of football. There you go, there you go. He says um, as if there isn't you know, already pre-existing yeah, commodity well, fetishisation in it. But, um, but yeah, what... what I wonder if uh, if this is the moment at which uh, English football did turn into a, a form of pornography, perhaps. Um, what happens if the FA had in, enforced Rule 34 when Tottenham Hotspur floated on the stock exchange? Which to me is a um, microcosmic version of a question that goes something like, what would have happened if the Thatcher government hadn't allowed for the massive deregulation of the stock exchange itself. It's a, it's one of those interesting things that we've been looking at quite a bit where you you say to what degree is football purely kind of um, uh, representative of things that are happening in a kind of wider uh, wider economic and, and social sense, but, uh, particularly economic. If Tottenham Hotspur had been told that no, they couldn't, pull this move off and I have to admit that I don't quite understand the intricacies of it my the cynic in me says it probably would have happened at some point anyway in the broader yeah. political context I know what you mean so it would have happened at some point and if it hadn't been with Tottenham it would have been with Manchester United um, if it, if Tottenham had been prevented from doing that there might have been slightly different power dynamics at the top of the English game in that period and maybe the the kind of ruling guard which was actually 
it's interesting because the moment when this happens, the, there is a kind of state of flux in English football. The, there is Liverpool and then there is everyone else. I mean, Liverpool, Everton, but you, you know, Forrest and Villa have both very recently won the European Cup. Manchester United are, are kind of in, in that situation that they were in all the way through the 1980s when they were trying to become a dominant club again and always just failing. And then you have Watford finishing second. I think you have Southampton finishing second in that in that time time period, uh, Coventry City winning the cup. So there's a lot a lot of challenge. It's it it's weirdly the eighties, which in many senses are viewed as the kind of the the, the death um, pending the rebirth of English football. The eighties are also this really interesting space of possibility, aren't they? So what would have happened if um, if clubs hadn't suddenly, or clubs of the director uh, board of directors, clubs suddenly had had been prevent had been prevented from abnegating their their public responsibilities in this way, would we have seen a different kind of um, a different kind of elite form? Could we have seen the Premier League form? Um, there's an interesting uh, comparison with Germany's fifty plus one rule about. Uh, Sort of fan ownership of of clubs, um, which about I mean Borussia Dortmund got round that when they floated in the nineties, didn't they? Mm. And that's probably linked to them nearly going bust about seven years ago. Yeah, yeah. Again, I don't don't know the ins and outs of that, but I do remember that that Dortmund did get themselves in a lot of financial yeah. trouble. Um, um, I think uh, Rule Thirty Four would have protected a lot of clubs from their nearly going bust, which has littered the nineties uh, and. Northies, um and they didn't go bust because football clubs aren't really businesses and uh, the fans uh, carry on acting as if it is a community asset rather than a business um, and therefore just about keep them going. Well I'm just trying to think of examples of really bad financial crises at clubs, kind of potentially terminal financial crises happening in in the 1970s and early 1980s and and the clubs I, I can think of who got into financial trouble tended to be smaller clubs and usually from the north of England clubs who <coughs> clubs who probably hadn't benefited from the de-regionalisation um, at the lower level of the professional game uh, run out of time on that one what if the football league had covered the whole United Kingdom uh, <laughs> it would have taken a long time to get around in the early days for a start um, okay, well, maybe let's say uh, this was implemented after one of the world wars or, or something. But um, I, I'm, this is basically a, an elaborate structure for me to share with you a little fantasy of mine. Uh, <laughs> of Arsenal uh, playing in a United Kingdom league uh, featuring, well, of course, teams from Wales, but Scotland and Northern Ireland. Uh, Arsenal, recognised as the establishment team in the mid-70s, recent winners of the double, having to play away at Belfast Celtic. Uh, I'm basically dreaming of a Gaelic version of Galatasaray's Welcome to Hell. Charlie George getting hauled off and kneecapped. Uh, vitriol, hatred. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It, that's it. It's, it's my little wet dream. Um, but um, there's something. I mean, this doesn't really exist anymore. But there was a time, ten, fifteen years ago, when 
when other countries' leagues seemed very exotic, and Spain's did. Mm. And part of that was the regionalism. The, um, and it's something that uh, Athletic Bilbao carry on quite admirably, I think, um, that they adhere to their, their all-Basque player policy in the face of uh, sporting objectivity. And I, I, I wonder, and I, I, I grew up thinking it would be wonderful for English football, or rather British football, to have something of that regional, regionalism and ex, extremism in its, um, in its identity. I think that there are already within English football's vestiges of, um, of regionalism. I think. One time when you really saw that come to the fore was in the mid-90s with Newcastle when everybody specifically talked about them as the Barcelona of England. They represent a very distinct region, which I don't think, well, coming from not far away from Tyneside, from Darlington, um, but from the North East. Anyway, the, the North East does have such a distinctive personality in relation to so everywhere you, else in England. People thought that. It wasn't just, like, was it Sir John Hall who made these... Well, Claims because I, I mean, I didn't in my sort of gold, gold paved southern uh, lifestyle. I, I, I assumed it was just sort of marketing talk and didn't think it no, was something people. Well, no, it was it was connected to deeper uh, attempts. I think going on from the from the late nineteen sixties to sort of autonomise uh, Tyneside a little bit, which would have begun with people like T Dan Smith. But you've got to remember in the. You know, first of all, I think Liverpool fans have often said Scouse not English. Manchester United fans have often expressed hostility towards the England team, perhaps for slightly different reasons. Then, but then in recent in recent English history, you do have um, not separatism per se, but a, a very strong regionalism that is often connected to embracing a different kind of politics to the politics at the national centre. So everyone makes the, the thing about the Socialist Republic of South, South Yorkshire and Sheffield in the in the 1980s now that you know that there were those very strong regional identities which I think have um, dissipated somewhat with a kind of uh, as part of a kind of broader crisis of identity that's been happening in Britain since uh, since Scotland's uh, the devolution of Scotland and Wales um, so maybe we have had that in English football but what would we have if there was a United Kingdom league now, particularly when we're starting to talk about uh, independence for the constituent parts of the UK again. Um, I think that it would be very interesting to see how Celtic and Rangers accommodate themselves. But also, um, given that I think the the speed of rail travel and probably of road travel hasn't differed that greatly since the late 1970s you could have perhaps seen a team like Aberdeen establishing themselves in a national league um, with the cup success they'd had uh, particularly as it, as it was a wealthy kind of boom town at the time you could see maybe um, maybe some of those kind of mid-ranking Scottish teams challenging becoming first division clubs um, the regionalism and the, and the distance I wonder if it might have countered the the marketisation um, and the commercialisation of the game a little bit. That's a that's an interesting thing to consider. I don't know what do you what do you think? Um, you mean well? Um, I think in terms of marketing, I think the situation would be at now would be the 
more the British peripheries would sort of market their biggest team uh, in the same way a tourist board does, mm-hmm. which I think is you see that with like even like Barcelona. And, yeah, sure. Uh, they they become sort of adverts of. I mean, it wasn't so long ago. Barcelona was a unfashionable sort of post-industrial city, mm-hmm. and combination. And the yeah, the football team in the Olympics um, played a pivotal role in commodifying uh, the city. Yeah, sure. I mean, you um, it was during the nineteen nineties. It became a, a place to be, didn't it? Um, but I think quite a lot of English and Scottish, actually British cities have undergone that same process of gentrification, haven't they? And where, where, without necessarily their clubs becoming icons of it. I mean, it is quite hard to turn Rangers and Celtic, for example, into um, avatars of the redevelopment. And oh, I'm going to finish that one. It's avatars okay. of the redevelopment and kind of neoliberalisation of a city like Glasgow, because what those clubs stand for, and it's not, you know, it's not something I want to embrace or endorse in any way. Um, what those clubs stand for is, in its own way, resistant to that kind of homogenisation, isn't it? They they stand for very very strong, um, kind of geo religious identities. And by both, well, until recently, both being of a sort of comparable size and mm. um, success, they could they they would act act out these identities very ferociously. Mm-hmm. Whereas, perhaps if if we had the UK league and either Rangers or, or Celtic became the sort of Espanol-sized uh, <laughs> uh, Glaswegian team, then the other one could become more of a fluffy, sterile version of itself. And much as Barcelona has become, you know, Catalan army, my ass, Catalan tourist board, more like. Um, but yeah, we have run out of time. What if the Northern League had accepted the invitation to become a feeder league for the conference? Okay, and uh, we have talked lots about um, re- we talked a fair bit about regionalism, and this question is: What if the Northern League, that is the league that sits at steps four and five of the English non-league pyramid in the northeast of England, what if the Northern League had accepted the invitation to become a feeder to the conference? And you probably need a bit of background here. Uh, when the um, when there was a decision taken to create a, an extra regional division just below Old Division 4, this division was at the time called the Alliance Premier, Um, four leagues were invited to become direct feeders, that is, have a a route straight into that Division 5, and they were the Isthmian League, also known nowadays as the the Ryman League, teams from from London, the Southern League, uh, teams from the the Southern Midlands and the rest of the South of England, uh, the Northern Premier League, teams from the lower half of the North of England, and the Northern League teams from the the northeast corner of England. Now, the reason that such a small and relatively depopulated area got offered a direct feeder place was because the Northern League had historically been one of the very strongest uh, amateur or non or, or semi-professional football leagues in in Britain, and that was largely because of the northeastern tradition, uh, the, the importance and priority given to to football in the northeast, the strength of the teams from collieries. And you see this again and again in the, the disproportionate number of 
players in the England national team up until the early 1990s who came from the North East. So it was thought that maybe the North East deserved its own representation in the same way as London had its own representation via the Isthmian League. What would have happened is I think that had the Northern League not acted parochially and decided to... Um, to take up the the alliance's offer, we would have seen a regular flow between a regionalised fifth division and the North East and probably increasingly from Yorkshire as well of teams. I think you would have found that the North East had stronger representation um, in the lower divisions of English football. Of course, now you only have since the demise of, of Darlington, you only really have Hartlepool and arguably York um, in the lower reaches of the, the fully professional game in Gateshead in the conference and only a couple of teams at the, the higher end of, of non-league, regional non-league. Um, you would have found the, the North East and Yorkshire much, much more strongly represented lower down and I think that there would have been knock-on effects of this as well. Um, one of them perhaps being that uh, kind of obscurely Newcastle, Sunderland and Middlesbrough might have performed a little better than they have. They would have had a, a stronger base of clubs in, in their areas producing young players, a stronger grassroots game. Uh, I think you would have seen that they would have had clubs playing at a better standard that they could loan developing players out to as well. So um, obviously this sounds like maybe a very specific and slightly self-indulgent question to be in there, but but for me, the um, the big gap between the majority, the the place that the majority of uh, northeastern non-league clubs play and uh, professional football is actually something that affects um, northeastern football in general. So what I'm trying to say is that the the needs to be, that um, there is still an argument for a strong grassroots game that can affect performances at the top end of the game as well. I think there's too much quick dismissing of the of the grassroots game. Do you want to expand on that maybe from a, a, a southern perspective? Do you feel do you feel that um, there's a lack of uh, Benissian representation in football? <laughs> there is a lack of Benissian representation in football. It's quite interesting that the um, the strongest team from north of Newcastle, which is a fairly kind of sparse area population wise, but not completely empty. It's not the moon, you know. The um, the highest representatives north of Newcastle are Blythe Spartans, a beautifully mellifluously named Blythe Spartans who play in the Northern Premier League One, so um, otherwise known as as Level Seven. Um, so yeah there is definitely a lack of, of strong Venetian representation and there are um, there are places that you look at and you think if they're in the south of England they would have a, a football team probably operating at, at so level five level, level six so um, you, you would find towns like Washington uh, Newton Aycliffe um, places of a size that in the south of England always have a team playing at least at kind of Ryman Premier level and usually usually higher would be would be represented, but I think what's happened is that this disconnect, and admittedly caused by the Northern League's parochialism in the first place, not caused by, because the FA was biased against the North East in, in any kind of clanging way, 
Um, I think the effect of this has been uh, that some of the big bigger clubs have been able to kind of monopolise fan bases because people look around and they see my my local club play at level nine. Um, you know, I could go and see Middlesbrough at level two uh, or something like that. So you find that towns aren't as well represented in the in the northeast of England as uh, as they are in the south. And maybe one thing there is you see a kind of flip side of the regionalism that we're talking about. Maybe the reason that the regionalism exists in the northeast, particularly around Newcastle United and Sunderland, is that the towns surrounding them have been disempowered in a footballing sense. Um, that they those clubs which I think again you can play the game with and say in the 1920s what happens if they joined the Football League it would have been very plausible for a place like Bishop Auckland to join the Football League in the 1920s and 1930s um, those towns have become kind of dormitory towns for Newcastle, Sunderland and to some extent Middlesbrough and maybe to some extent Darlington and Hartlepool as well um, it's a, but it is definitely an interesting one I would love to see a version of the English Football Pyramid now where the Northern League had taken up that offer. And you think this affects the England, English national team? Uh, probably to some degree, yeah. yeah. It's certainly, if you look in the 80s team, there was a couple of England, full England internationals who had actually um, come out of the Northern League. Uh, Chris Waddle started at Taolo, uh, Gary Pallister played at Billingham Town, um, and there are definitely others who, who used that path. Brian Clough's first club, I believe, with Billingham Sinfonia. What if Wimbledon FC had not been allowed to relocate to Milton Keynes? Otherwise known as what would have happened if Alan Turvey's vote had been the um, the deciding one. Because that... If he'd managed to convince his fellow um, panellists. What happens if Wimbledon FC hadn't really been allowed to relocate to Milton Keynes and, be, and gradually become MK Don? So I believe I've just received an email from um, one of my Irish spotters telling me that, uh, that MK Dons are on tour in Ireland at the moment. So um, they've fi finally gone to Dublin? The Dons have finally gone to Dublin. Maybe they're just uh, scalping out another relocation. Um, what would have happened? What do you think? Um, well, I mean, it's quite possible they'd be in exactly the same position AFC Wimbledon are in now, though without having had the experience of the rebirth. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, to get a bit Durkheimian here, I think having a sort of foundation myth uh, in your group ritual makes things mm -hmm. stronger. And I think Wimbledon fans have had more fun this way than they would have uh, merely stagnating for mm. 10 years. That, that's really interesting, I think. How many, how many of us have, as supporters would be willing for our clubs to go through an existential crisis in order and I use existential crisis in the sense of the existential crisis that happened to the dinosaurs around the existential crisis that happened to Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, how, how many They're of both us... dead. <laughs> Are the dinosaurs really dead? <laughs> Can you prove it? Um, would we be willing for our clubs to be taken away, go to the wall, in order that we have something like that happen to us? Now, I know that there are definitely Wimbledon supporters who say they would rather that they were still chugging along in the third or fourth or whatever divisions and none of it had ever happened. Um, but I think that it's undeniable for, for a lot of them that they have 
they probably have enjoyed themselves and, and maybe as we, we know that some Wimbledon fans didn't particularly appreciate playing in the Combined Counties League or the lower reaches of the of the Isthmian League um, but I do think that they would all have enjoyed most have enjoyed the collective the collective experience uh, yeah. I know at Darlington we're at, at the moment there is a real sense of collective purpose and I can say factually because I've met some of these people there are people who come to the club now that have not come to the club for 14-15 years um, because they like that uh, that sense of being part of something that is is a a collective project rather than uh, maybe a project that's administered top down in the way that maybe Roman Abramovich would use the term project in relation to football. Um, so there's that, but I think there are kind of other things that you can explore around that. Uh, we if if the move had been refused. I think that would have sent out a categorical message about uh, sports franchising, certainly in the English league, because there have been sports. For, there is an issue of sports franchising in both uh, in both Scottish and I think Irish football now as well, and it's not something you really want to be there, is it? No, no, no. Um, what um, what has come out of the? The backlash to the Milton Keynes move is um, I don't like I can't imagine them doing it again. Like the the FA, I think they've sort of insinuated that it was a mistake. I can't imagine it happening again anytime soon on the same scale and in the same way. But we have seen. Oh, we've, there's something similar with Doncaster Bells, the women's. Yeah. Okay. Club. So so well. Right again, it's one of those things that I wish I had the notes in front of me to deal with. And They've been I, economically uh, relegated from the women's Premier League. Essentially, so, and this is something that I would rather devote a bit more time to in another episode. But I think it is very much the case that the treatment of Doncaster Bells in the women's Premier League has really been the the FA at their most kind of nakedly financialist. Um, and you saw the same thing with, with MK Don. So no, it hasn't gone away. You've also got the Coventry situation at the moment, which we will be exploring pretty soon, I think. Um, and the FA do tend to make these uh, appalling decisions, which are clearly not in the in the interests of what we uh, as fans term the game. Football. Yeah, not in the wider interests of football, but certainly in the wider interests of a kind of capitalist football. Um, so... Yeah, I wonder if it will never happen again, or the FA just don't have the <laughs> kind of the accelerationist goal to push through something like that again. You know, um, I think it's more the case that the FA know that if they did something like that again soon, then they would be looking at a real kind of resistance on the part on the part of fans. Look how MK Dons still are often yeah. treated at away matches. Now I know that you know they're a club that most fans really do not like. Because they're representative of yeah. what could happen. They're um, the heirs to Mills, no one likes us. Yeah, I think I think so, and it's a very different kind of uh, unlike, isn't it? Yeah. Um, horrible club, by the way. I have to say, it's one of the least enjoyable places I've ever been, and I'm sorry for um, not expressing solidarity to FC Wimbledon fans by by having gone there. It's really really vile ground and atmosphere. I think. What if England had been eliminated earlier in the group stage of the 1990 World Cup? 
okay, so if anyone can remember the group stage of the, the 1990 World Cup, England were reprehensibly bad for their first game against the Republic of Ireland. We're unlucky to only draw in their second game against the Netherlands, and if you were of Rob and I's age, um, you would perhaps recall a moment of vast excitement when it looked like Stuart Pearce had scored a brilliant free kick and then it turned out to be an indirect free kick and it wasn't allowed. And then in the last game, they were really struggling against Egypt and, and Mark Wright leapt out of nowhere to knock the ball in, he said like a proper commentator, and, and taking them through to the second round and the rest is kind of history. What happens if Mark Wright hadn't carried out that salmon-like leap? Um, would we have the Premier League? Would we have seen Gaza mania happen? Would we have seen the commercialisation of football? Would there be terracing? Would there be cheap tickets? Was that, you know How important was England's kind of relative success in Italy in 1990? Uh, so, yeah, you've got this narrative that um, everyone uh, experienced this um, tragic, beautiful collective experience of watching England lose on penalties in the semi-final on TV and they all started loving football mm-hmm. which um, strikes me as far too simplistic um, and yeah I mean and people do dress it up like that like everything changed you, you wouldn't have the Premier League you wouldn't have uh, teams competing well in, in Europe if it hadn't been for, for, for that but oh, I don't buy it uh, I mean the the changes in football were already happening. Um, you know the uh, the rule thirty four was was out out the window. Mm. Um, the big clubs were pushing for a breakaway. Uh, t- uh, terracing. I mean the Taylor report came out quite quickly after um, the uh, Hillsborough disaster mm-hmm. and the government. Uh, I mean, apparently, what happened was the government pushed Taylor to um, include all seater stadiums because they wanted to backtrack from their unworkable mem- members' mm. ID card scheme. So, what we're into there, on one hand, is um, the, the government coming away from an unworkable scheme to put a proxy version of something else in place, and we are going to be talking about talking about social exclusion in football in the next episode. Hopefully, aren't we? yeah. We're also talking about a kind of Naomi Klein thing here, aren't we? A kind of disaster capitalism. The, the, the narrative often says that the Premier League success was predicated on 1990, um, uh, some kind of mix of England having uh, an un, unpredictably excellent uh, midfield player and football hooligans all deciding to take lots of MDMA and love each other rather than fight each other around the same time. But what we think may actually have happened was that the um, the commercialisation of the game was actually predicated on on the disaster of of Hillsborough. Um, so that's a that's a quite an interesting one, isn't it? Again, I don't quite buy the fact that the Premier League would needed Italian ninety to happen. Um, if I have a kind of dominant memory of watching football in the summer of nineteen ninety or the middle part of nineteen ninety, it was a uh, Manchester United. Manchester United and Crystal Palace's 3-3 draw in the FA Cup final. That was the first game of football I ever watched, actually. There, there you go. I think it was probably, arguably, the first game of football I ever watched as well. So, um, you know, based on uh, an admittedly small sample size, it was that was a more important game than a, 
England v Germany. Well, <laughs> this, this is the sample, so you have a hundred percent for yeah. the FA Cup final of that year. Um, but no, I mean, it was it was for me. I mean, as an eight year old, and I must emphasise, an eight year old, I had the experience that that the narrative seems to imagine everyone had of being enchanted and broken hearted by uh, the tragedy of going out on penalties um, and I sobbed and I sobbed but I, I, I don't buy it that you know this was happening to 30 year olds <laughs> or that yeah, I mean you have a similar story with and then Nick Hornby wrote that book and everyone yeah. turned, everyone realised they loved football which it all seems a bit simplistic I mean football grounds weren't empty at their supposed low point no. in the 80s it was a relative low point they'd gone down by you know a fraction well, yeah, so you have attendances that are more like League One in France. Um, but, they, 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 yeah, you're but right. It's still they, a, mass, they a, a, a mass popular experience. Um. Well, what, what we see there in the way that that narrative has been generated, that it depended on Italian 90s, is quite a popular kind of liberal stroke neoliberal way of telling stories, isn't it? It's that instead of talking about structural change and these deep... Um, uh, systemic shifts you start talking about there being an event which made everything a bit different somehow mm -hmm. uh, a way of um, uh, dis disattributing agency saying the agency doesn't belong to to capitalism perhaps and saying it belongs to Gaza something like that Ga Gaza made <laughs> it was Gaza who yep. commercialised English football rather than a, a kind of excellent set of uh, market relations at the time um, so it is interesting to look at that, at the narrativization that happens there. Um, but again, you're right. People were still going to football in the 1980s. People were taking, you know, those people who weren't fighting were often taking quite big risks to go to football in the yeah. in the 1980s. So I can't see the shifts that have happened being entirely contingent on. 1990. You could say that the real kind of accelerated commercialization post the late 90s has as much to do with World Cup 98 and Beckham and a narrative around failure as um, as 1990. Uh, the other thing is, I just like anecdotally, I remember the last England game of World Cup 1990. Now, what was the last England game of World Cup 1990? It wasn't England won, West Germany won losing on penalties. Was it a rather timid third-place playoff? It was a really quite poor showing in the third-place playoff against Italy, yeah, when England lost, I think, I think 2-1. It was my, um, I think it was my ninth birthday that day, and what I remember is thinking, England are always going to be like this. <laughs> England are disappointing, football is disappointing, and if you're going to be into football, you have to embrace the disappointment as a kind of fundamental part of the... Um, part of the experience I suppose rainy day that, that kind of hot summer suddenly shut off it was the first birthday that it ever rained on in my life and uh, and England meekly surrendered to, to the hosts there we go so what have we learnt well I think what, what we've learned is that to, to paraphrase a, a rather well known um a rather well-known saying about the relationship between capitalism and apocalypticism. It, it's, uh, it's almost easier to imagine the, the end of the world than imagine uh, a non-commercialised football. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to say what would have happened 
otherwise in in each case um because inevitably is we have a kind of a poetic problem almost of saying what happens what happens in the virtual what what do we see beyond um beyond what is beyond the relations of production and distribution that we have at the moment um so we can fantasize but it's more to me the tantalizing thing about counterfactuals is that they give us a sense of possibility rather than an obvious sense of what that possibility is quite often I, I can't say what would have happened but we still have this I hope we still have this kind of um, uh, desiring sense of there being something else that can happen um, what, what do you think of what have we learned um, Arthur Morick said uh, counterfactuals in history serve the purpose of proving that uh, determinism is a load of old rubbish um, I don't think we agree with him I think um we believe that none of these things would have changed football much at all. Mm. Yeah, because there is another kind of determinism at work. All of the things we've talked about have been more symptomatic of a deep-lying kind of material determinant, right? Because football is not autonomous from... um, the rest of the society. The rest of society, those social relations, it is just a, set, a, a kind of a subset of relations, right? Which maybe, and we'll ex- examine this in more detail, maybe replicate broader relations or maybe are just a category of those relations. Um, but what, what I think we find all the way through is that we still have this kind of determinant, even if you take out individual individual events, um, so there is a kind of broader question to be asked, isn't there? And the broader question probably isn't anything to do with, that, with football at all. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a podcast that's not about football. <laughs> well, um, as, as saying that, I, I am going to the first pre-season. It's the 9th of July and I'm already finding my way to go to a pre-season friendly tonight. So I'll, um, I'll hopefully be able to report in the next podcast through, as someone who has actually been to a football match in the last couple of weeks. Um, hopefully I will see some or will have seen some people there so it's very difficult to know what tense to use to talk in the future about a football match which is still in the future but will have been in the past by the time that this is broadcast I think that's enough Uh, next week we'll be performing a seance to interview Pavarotti about his own role in the commercialisation of English football Goodbye. Goodbye. And remember, in the year 2050, a team of automated robots will defeat your pathetic human World Cup holders. Mark my words. Vengeance shall be ours. Pull the plug! Pull the fucking plug! Pull the plug!